0: Thank you for downloading this episode of the Football Purist Podcast. Please help by subscribing and check out footballpurist.com.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Talk On Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Hallett, and I'm fortunate to have an old friend back as we breathe some life into one of our oldest brands here at the purists cafe football for those of our listeners that might remember so my partner from the start of that way back in the day jimmy tory home how are you man hey jeff it's a beautiful day here at
2: the Hallett the studio um it's very nice here so thanks for having me and you're right book club for football Yeah, we need something to do with the absence of
1: transfer news. So
2: here (laughs) we are. Oh man, the absence of transfer news for only Liverpool, (laughs) as everyone else seems
1: to be buying. Yeah, they're playing a different game. It it just remains to be seen with the window closing. What on the eighth? It it, it closes the weekend that I think
2: the Premier League starts, or or like the day of the Friday before, before. or something. Or maybe well, Friday the the season
1: starts on the Friday this year, so maybe Thursday. I, I have no idea. To be short. But it's less than two weeks away now. So yeah, all the preseason, all the major tournaments just stopped. So this is like the first meaningful weekend where they can make progress. You're right. The press love to throw stuff out. So I guess who knows what will happen. But right now, it's not looking great. No, it's not. It's not. Not at the time of this recording. (laughs) Okay, we got that out of the way. back to the football book club. (laughs) So as some of our listeners, as I mentioned, may remember Cafe Football. For those of you who don't, it's just as Jimmy said, it's a – basically a book club for football. And we pull some of the big ideas out of some of the major works. And uh, today we consider Ryan Baldy's book, The Next Big Thing, one such major work where he highlights through a collection of 15 or so short stories of Mm. these wonder kids that were tabbed early on as high potential, high upside future captain of England, all these sort of platitudes and how they all lost their way in one shape, one way, shape, or form. We're going to basically pull out just a couple of the ideas of the book so you can understand what it is and uh, probably want to read it yourself. because You will want to read it yourself. Fantastic You will want book. to buy it and read it yourself. Right. Yes. And then we'll bring in, actually, Ryan at the end. He's going to join the pod at the end to give us a little insight from his point of view, his process, approaching it, researching it, and who he's looking at going forward. So, I think that'll be fun. So, let's get right into it. Ryan's new book, The Next Big Thing, 15 stories that all fall into di- different categories. And I we all read it in different ways. So I read it as a dad with a 10-year-old with his own stated ambitions of becoming a pro someday, which you want to encourage, but maybe not too much. And as you read this book, it, it becomes clear quickly how, you know, while a lot of the stories fall to stereotypical, maybe predictable ends, like injury, attitude, a player's performance, it really is fascinating, Jimmy. How fleeting the opportunity is. It's like it opens up one oh, moment, oh yes, and it's gone the next. Yes, um, like you mentioned,
2: whether it be injury, recurring injuries, whether it be uh, falling out with a manager, whether it be a new manager coming in, uh, a, diff- a a, co- a complete uh, structural movement that that occurs that that in turn makes the this player that was brought in or that was uh, handpicked by the manager no longer being handpicked you're right it's sometimes like you say the window opens and it's not even anything that the player does when it closes in on them and it's and it's it shows you just how i mean because all of these players and even the players that we don't necessarily see as stars we see as quote unquote squad players those players are really really good Mm -hmm. they just didn't get that opportunity to make that move
1: forward to to be one of the wonder kids yeah, Ben Woodburn, Shea Ojo, like Raf Camacho, who just left to Sporting. These are all Adam Morgan, who's in this book. Yes, of course, and uh, even Owen Price, that had a dream of Liverpool at one point. But yeah, it, they come up. You don't think that they're going to figure into the team? Harry Wilson, another one. Like, yeah, it's nuts. Well, he's like a new signing too. it's so, so okay. <laughs> But the window is really delicate for them. And they have varying support structures around them. They've got parents that may or may not know. They've got agents with misaligned incentives. Sure. They're there to not necessarily tell the kid when time is up or where they should really go. It's all about signing that new bigger deal. And then there's the players themselves as teenagers. Like, do they even have the background to understand how to negotiate a deal so, as we kind of go through it, we're just going to highlight a couple of the areas. So, we, we mentioned injuries and treatments. Uh, Jimmy, why don't you get us kicked off on on that part of it?
2: Well, injuries, I think, and, and he mentions this, uh, Ryan Baldy mentions this at the beginning, like his introduction portion. He said, you probably see a lot of recurring elements. Obviously, one of the the more obvious ones that you might think of as to why a, a wonder kid didn't make it to the big show or didn't make it to become the, didn't reach the potential that many thought they would reach would be injuries. Um, and the thing is, even though there are injuries, they're not all the same there are different occurrences. Um, you know, I myself suffered a very minor injury as in I've had a scope because I tore my meniscus while I played Sunday league football at the top of my level, of course. Um, <laughs> torn down at 19. Uh, no, not really. But, uh, you know, just the the process that I went through, like I, I literally cried when I walked off the pitch. I'm not ashamed to admit that. I didn't know if it was anything major or not, but all I knew is I couldn't sprint anymore. And just the process of having to go through surgery like that, without uh feeling as though sure feeling the sadness because um my love for the game as a hobby and maybe as a competitive uh outlet in my life but not as my source of living i can't imagine what the the feeling might be for a player who does get an injury with all of those pressures on them so you know um Whether it's a really what we might consider now a slight meniscus tear, which is something that could be easily repairable and you're, you're back out on the training pitch in like three or four weeks, especially with the technology now maybe back then, uh, because a lot of these stories uh, start around the beginning. Like, what Ryan did was amazing. He got 15 short stories, like you mentioned. All of them, he went straight to the source in various degrees of how in-depth their interviews went. And at the same time, he kind of covered almost the entire spread, I would say, of the Premier League era. Uh So he talked to players when the Premier League had just been conceived, and to the point where, I think Adam Morgan's story, which is 2012, 2013, when that's when he was one of Liverpool's might becoming might be one of those star strikers in the future, right? So he covered this um, whole twenty—I mean, what is it? Twenty years, two decades, or something like that—of. Medical technology and how it 's changed, and how injuries are now looked at these days if we 've seen at liverpool how oxlade chamberlain 's injury, which probably twenty years ago would have seen as a career ending injury, possibly coming in into the first team again this year after I would say, 18 months or so. I mean, Leo Morgan, his story was that he had recurring cartilage injuries already leading up to what ended up being his huge injury. And then, like you said, he, uh, based off the recommendation of a teammate, decided to go off to Austria um, to have his knee surgery. And when he came back, I think there was an infection and they had to open him up again. And uh, it's just... That, that is just unfortunate because, I mean, you have small niggling injuries and, in the course, cartilage injuries back then maybe were a little bit more niggling that they were serious, right? Um, but still niggling injuries leading up to a major injury. For him, he just never got, kind of got the break. I mean, I think what happens, um, with the cartilage in my experience is that once you once once you 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 tear your meniscus just a little bit it kind of just never feels the same after that sure you can play on it you can perform on it uh, of course there's the mental aspect of of am i going to tear it again am i going to need to sit out for another three or four weeks but the thing is you keep on grinding down your meniscus and that's what morgan said happened to him he just kept on grinding down his cartilage to almost to the point where he had like no oh, cartilage bone on, bone on bone and then he has his major injury that's I can't imagine what that's like. I mean, I have some cartilage, I hope. I mean, sometimes it feels like I don't. <laughs> but I I, I to, to bone on bone would just be would be nuts. And then and to keep on pushing at that age because he was still fairly fairly young. Of course, most of these players testimonies are from when they're fairly young just that type of training that they do whether it be one session a day or two sessions a day but a lot of running a lot of cardio and then on top of that to technical play i remember when when i tore my meniscus and coming back i i didn't want to make any breaks i didn't want to make any sudden movements because i was afraid that my knee could take it or it couldn't it's just that intense professional training i can't believe i can't understand what that's like yeah
1: some heartbreaking stories there so we covered lionel morgan the other one just to mention for Wolves. Supporters, Wolves fans, you'll remember Matt Murray. It's such a sad story. Well, it's sad but hopeful. Like it, 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 there's varying degrees of of player attitudes about injury, and of course, all these things intertwine. You know, injuries become timeout, become problems with managers and playing time, sure. and missing the moment, and. You know, the player attitude suffers, they approach it the right way or they don't. Matt Murray was like the quintessential example, at least as you learn in the book, of handling it the right way and being a team guy first. A goalkeeper destined for being
2: England's number one. I mean, and just... you, you, And here's the thing, you and I don't really tend to think of keepers who get injured on this consistent
1: basis, right? You look at Alison Becker as a rock. Same thing with David De Gea of that other team down the road. A player that can only string together one good season really consistently in oh six, oh seven battle for the national team was against Joe Hart, which everybody knows his limitations. So he was the superior goalkeeper in England. He just never got that shot. But his team was always behind him. He always took it with grace. Probably the best story you could come up with for a player having his career cut short by injury where it's, you know, it's their lifelong dream and it just, you know, it doesn't come together. He kept on trying and coming back and coming back
2: and coming back. And after, how, how many years was it of injuries? Like
1: over four or five five years
2: over four or five years he just he just decided that that was it we talk about coming back from injury we talk about the mental aspect of it then you talk about having to fight for your place again once you are deemed fit to start training again Uh, then you have to win back your place Uh, you have to worry about the fact that you keep on getting injured so obviously the club's going to sign other people in your position, other keepers in his case. Um, And keeping for keepers, (laughs) keepers don't normally get subbed out, you know, at 45 minutes or at 60 minutes or anything like that. It's not like if you're not starting, you're probably not playing much. And and, and for um, certain teams, sometimes your goalkeeper – you know, you you'll see some of the teams uh, like Liverpool. You'll see teams like uh, Manchester City. They will they will play their their second string keeper in the domestic cups. Um, there pre-season. are some, there's or, or preseason, but 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 there's some teams that played their strongest team always uh-huh. in everything because they understand that the domestic cups are probably their best chance for silverware that season. Uh-huh. So that's another thing that Matt Murray had to think about and to come back over and over and over and over and over again crazy good story I mean the the promise that he showed in his teens I think late teens to 17 18 19 goalkeepers normally aren't seen um, as potential starters or in their prime or 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 anything like that until uh, you know like 20s because they're hitting their prime in their 30s because of, of the game experience that they have and because of the longevity of normally again they don't tend to get injured, mm-hmm. so they have the possibility of of having much longer careers, see uh, players like Peter Cech, et cetera, et cetera. That's um, unfortunate for him.
1: Yeah. And as we move on, so we've discussed the, the injuries and in the state of medical treatment at the time, the other big bucket for a lot of these stories is player attitude. And I kind of mentioned how they all intertwine. But uh, Jimmy, the story of Cherno Samba, the face of football manager of the video (laughs) game. (laughs) That was a a unique story, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, I think this was one of the most, um, I don't want to say eye opening stories, but it definitely tapped into an awareness that was subtle uh, for me from Ryan here. All of us have spent many, many hours on FIFA. I I would assume. uh, Looking for that next potential starlet in the youth academy when we're playing football manager, or I don't know. I've never played. Ultimate football. So I don't I don't know if they have that possibility there. But spent many, many hours scouting, quote unquote. I know a lot of people I've never played football manager, but there's a lot of people who do. Ryan goes ahead and says that now football manager is actually something that's used inside of uh professional teams is in terms of scouting. Um so good on the the creators of this franchise. It's uh it's a pretty unique stuff that you guys came up with. But um can you imagine finding a player That on almost every platform is just going to be destined to be the greatest player almost ever. I mean, that's just the way that it was being described in how it happened for Samba. And then, you know, having that pressure on top of you when you are in your late teens. Just nuts. Like, there's no way to live up to that. The only way to live up to that is to lead your team, um, to three, four domestic, uh, league titles or something like that. Plus taking England all the way to, to a World Cup. There's no way to live up to that. So you have to, you have to sit on that because everyone is playing football manager and seeing that this player is going to take them all the way i can't imagine that type of pressure more more so than maybe any other and it shows the shift in technology again we're talking about technology it shows the shift in how the mentality of supporters and managers and agents and scouts and even players and peers themselves how do they see themselves i mean we've seen it all the time we we see players who hold up their fifa ratings right we've seen um their card that shows like their overall rating plus their statistical ratings and stuff like that they have to live up to that now that's something that players in uh in the older decades of the 60s 70s 80s early 90s too it wasn't the same as it is now didn't have to live with that
1: contrasting story to the Cherno, so Cherno was like a too much too fast story um on his same team was a charlton athletic he and owen price same team opposite wingers owen was dealing with different issues coming up. It was manager jealousy in the youth ranks at Charlton, where the youth manager would get jealous as he was trying to get a transfer over to Liverpool initially, uh, which was denied. Um, and it ended up being a transfer over to Spurs for him was missed his dream transfer to, self-described dream transfer to Liverpool who knows how that went down and why it didn't go down. hmm But as he gets over to the youth part of Spurs, he's got managers jealous of the wages he's on, jealous of the transfer number itself paid for the player. Mm-hmm. Kind of shocking to think about. Of course, you're going to end up with some kids that you're coaching that make more money than you. That sure. shouldn't be something that you joke about to the other players and try to hinder their development. It's players are always going to make more
2: than your managers on right most of the time, especially mm-hmm. your 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 starlets or your potential big players in the future. I think they will almost always make more money than you. Right? It's unfortunate that you. Your your manager is supposed, even in the world of adults, I would think that your manager is someone who's supposed to motivate, uh, is supposed to be able to relate to his players, uh, encourage them, and help them develop and grow, right? That's what you've seen from
1: what you would consider the best managers out there, you know, Klopp, Pochettino, sure. Guardiola, and uh, let's not forget Lionel Morgan's manager at Swansea that talked about a certain manager brendan rogers as the best manager how strange that you brought best that developing up. manager he had ever had how strange that you brought that up i thought that you would have
2: completely ignored that i was going to let it go jeff here being the the biggest fan that brendan rogers does not believe at all that brendan rogers established the base that klopp took over from and was able to take to a
1: champions league glory yeah a pretty good manager so as we move, so we've got the the player attitude, so the too much too soon with, with Cherno. Um, the last major category that you see a lot, and again, all of these intertwined, so it's not just one or the other. Um, one turns into the other, turns into the other yet. The relationship with the manager, um, of course, you've got players like Vandermeid, um, a pl- Dutch player out of the Ajax Academy that was lured initially by Inter um, mm-hmm. and eventually over to Everton. and Good Lord. So many crazy stories here. Um, so <laughs> yes. manager turnover at Ajax, manager turnover at at Inter, and with that, the priority for Vandermeer, like, is he going to play? He was a fantastic Dutch winger. You know, as he moves over to Liverpool, I think that's where the story gets interesting. He's moving from... Holland and his wife very into animals. And she had essentially a whole zoo that she dragged with her to Liverpool. Yeah. So you get the story of the guy is coming with camels in tow and they need a property big enough to handle like essentially the Liverpool Zoo. You know, as he gets injured, of course, all the players deal with injury, Um, not to give too much away, but like he ends up, he's supposed to be rehabbing and instead he's with the stripper in a separate place. He ended up having a baby with and that baby ended up in ICU in the NICU and David Moyes wasn't giving him any grace for it. Look, I don't know. Was David Moyes known as
2: a as a player manager, as a manager that had good relationships with his players? Not a player manager. I'm sorry. That's I honestly, I name. honestly don't know. Neither do other. I. I'm not exactly sure. I know that he was. Uh, this is an example of not yeah. being one. Yeah. <laughs> he was. He was. He was worshipped by by um, Everton, obviously, being someone who led them to complete mediocrity, but uh, very consistently. Yeah, yeah. For a long period of time. I think for me, the story here is more of an excess, and like just. Um, A ton of excess in everything from in terms of his personal life, right? He had an excess of money, which meant that he had an excess of possessions, which included live animals, which meant that he and his wife um, were very bought a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff uh probably not thinking that he would maybe progress uh to different parts of the world in terms of his career i'm not exactly sure if he thought he i don't remember if it mentions or not if he thought he was going to be a lifelong lifelong um player for ajax but going to italy um again having to go then to england and just you have to bring all of your stuff with you and to continue on the path of having too much stuff whether it be possessions also apparently relationships right he um already being married he decided to have an affair um, which led to more and more stuff that he wanted to buy and maybe be able to give to uh, the person he was having an affair with which in turn ended up in having an extramarital affair and also child i mean just a lot a lot of things that this man had on top of unfortunately for him um cultural differences Uh, you and I haven't talked too much about in this episode yet about integration but just imagine going from different culture and country to different culture uh, with trying to retain on something that's a semblance of who you are as yourself as a personal person as you grew up in and uh, it kind of all kind came crashing down around the same time injuries plus unfortunate um, medical circumstances for his uh, young born child and then just having a mediocre manager who didn't care he well, just didn't care.
1: He was the victim of uh, of turnover at Ajax, uh, where you know manager turned over to Kuman who all oh, right, f- right fancy right, 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 right. But <clears throat> then came the decision to, to sell to sell, yeah. and I don't think. I, be interested in ryan's thoughts in this but it didn't seem like he had much of a choice yeah there's sometimes that players don't have choices that's true yeah well kuman you know throughout just it seemed half-heartedly if the player wants but mm-hmm. you know as we know now in today's game players have all the power but if, back then it wasn't like if that. they're valuable of course yeah, yeah if they're not it's a different story but yeah for Vandermaid it was poof off to enter and then eventually to everton and sure That's it. Yeah. (laughs) That's the career. There's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff for him. I think a final story just to tease out, and then we'll uh, get the opportunity to talk to Ryan himself about his process, how he came to the book. Just to... Round out this story of manager and club turnover with uh, the story of John Bostic, who was raised as a Crystal Palace, you know, raised in Crystal Palace Academy, world renowned for their development of players, and mm-hmm. uh, of course to sell in their case. He was faced with decision to leave his lifelong club which he supported personally, his f- entire family supported. And was given the opportunity to start, youngest player to start in their history. Right, ex- exactly. Had to make the decision to go to Spurs because he saw a better opportunity over there, but mm-hmm. very difficult for the player, retribution for the player and his family, taking away their season seats at... At Crystal Palace? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> and then he ends up at Spurs, and it was just this m- moving set of ice where Damon Camoli, who Liverpool supporters remember Hero. well. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that for a second. But you know, like uh so Camole leaves, goes to Liverpool, where he's responsible for such amazing transfers. Andy Carroll, like uh Jordan Henderson, Charlie Adam,
2: Stuart Downing. Uh Luis Suarez, I think was part of that. Jose too. Enrique. Jose Enrique was very good. <laughs> Bostic is just a example of
1: just moving. He
2: was also the youngest player to start <laughs> for Spurs. Yeah. And then like you said, Damien Comolli would left, new manager came in and I think everything just fell out of favor It's like he was at the uh I think the best example I could give here for just just right now. Now of course, uh we're talking about two different level calibers of players, but uh Philippe Coutinho was doing well at Liverpool. He was the best player. Now, um Bostock was not considered the best player yet. He was considered someone who had high potential and he was going to be cocooned at Crystal Palace. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think he would have been protected uh, and he probably would have been able to reach a very high ceiling had he stayed. Same thing for for Philippe Coutinho, I think you could say at Liverpool. Um, he was loved and adored by the supporters. Um, he was loved by his teammates and an opportunity came knocking in Bostock's um uh, Situation, it was to move to uh, what could be definitely considered, I would say, a bigger club. Um Uh, No disrespect to Crystal Palace. I don't think he meant any disrespect to Crystal Palace, but he decided that that was the next move. And they were promising him the same thing, but with with bigger uh, and better exposure. Being in London, uh, being in the Premier League, uh, being at Spurs, which is still traditionally, especially now, you know, one of the top six teams, if not a little bit higher sometimes. um, Just, you know, reached the Champions League final this year, which is a pretty good trajectory for them. Uh, Philippe Coutinho decided to take a dream move for him and his family to go to Barcelona and it didn't work out for him so far at Barcelona. We don't know what Coutinho's story is going to end up uh, but we know that Bostock's future did not end up well. Kind of the same situation was promised something and then everything kind of just fell out of favor for him. Um, so that's the best kind of modern day example that I can give for him. It's quite unfortunate because there's sometimes players decide to make a move. You take a gamble. I mean, there's there's some players who stay for too long and and uh, to refer to another Brazilian player since I just finished off Canary in Blue with Chase, um, we're talking about Luan, who's a fantastic Brazilian player. Uh, he plays for Grêmio in the Brazilian uh, domestic league. He never took his chance, it looks like, to come to Europe or to go to Europe. I'm sorry. To go to Europe and maybe grow with another team. And he's suffering for it now. He doesn't get called up for the national team. And it doesn't look like he's going to make a move outside of Brazil from now on, which is, I mean, he's probably making enough money and everything like that. He just won't be able to grow a little bit more in terms of nas- international exposure. Uh, Philippe Coutinho took that gamble and it didn't work out for him. It's, it's, it's a rock and a hard place for these players sometimes. Yeah, to an, stay
1: or to go. A, a, any Liverpool supporter that watched the Copa America and, and noticed Everton... <laughs> mm. Oh, well, he's making... The, the irony of bringing him over to Liverpool is just too rich, but <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I don't think he'll make that mistake.
2: Uh, no, I think Everton will definitely be making a move. I think if he doesn't make a move this summer, um, I think there might even be a move in the winter, uh, or they might even do one of those things they've been doing to a lot of young Brazilians, which is, uh, Real Madrid has done that two seasons in a row now with Vinicius Jr. and uh, Rodrigo Goes, I think is his last name, which you kind of, like, wrap him up, sign him up for a deal, and then have them show up to the club a year later so
1: we'll have to see how that goes Mm -hmm. so that completes our first part about i guess the high points of the book encourage everybody to go buy it check it out digest it it's something you could literally read in a weekend it's very short stories all very entertaining but still super incredibly dense in detail i'd say yeah right Uh, just very good just as jimmy said i mean it's multifaceted taking pulling in the journos perspective not just the we didn't even scratch the surface of this book
2: yeah i recommend it. i highly recommend everyone get a copy support ryan baldy
1: self-publisher and with that moving right into the author himself And we're back with part two of this Café Football podcast on The Next Big Thing, Ryan Baldi's new book that was released back in May. And we've got the author himself to take us through his story about the book. Ryan Baldi, welcome to Café Football.
0: Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me.
1: You've obviously been up to this for quite a while. We've been signaling to our listeners for, I want to say, for better than a year. That the book was coming, that you were writing it, the subject matter, and it's finally here. I know it's a journey for the players, but it had to have been a journey for an independent writer like you.
0: Yeah, it was. Um, it's, it's been a real kind of learning process for me. Um, my first book hopefully the first of many. Um, but I've definitely learned a lot of lessons from the whole process from um, the kind of the writing of it, the the approach, um, the tackling of the subjects, and how you put that across, but also the business side of it of actually bringing a book to life, um, which which is quite difficult. Um, Opportunity is quite thin on the ground. Uh, you have to be really patient, which is something um, I learned this time around. Um, as you guys will know, um, it, the uh, the initial deal I had for my book. Um, was with a uh, a publisher called Unbound um, who are based in the UK, and they use a crowdfunding model to get their books published. Right, whereby you set up, a, a fund, where they set up a funding page for you, and you um, you essentially sell kind of pre-sales of, of the book. Um, nobody's giving you, you know, you're not asking for money for nothing. You're asking people to kind of pledge to pledge the money to buy the book ahead of time in order to bring it Um I was never fully comfortable with that, but um, after a few months of pitching um, my idea around different publishers and either hearing nothing or or getting a no, um, I figured that might be my only way to to kind of make it happen, so I went for it. Um, And then within a few days of of signing the deal with Unbound, um, another publisher I'd pitched to and was yet to hear from got back to me saying that they would would love to take the book, Unfortunately, I wasn't able to, to go with them at that point. So I had to kind of push on with the crowdfunding side of things like give my best effort. But um, being, I found it really difficult to manage the time between sort of campaigning to raise the funds, which I was never never particularly comfortable with in the first place. I don't like kind of, I put myself out there to do things like that. It felt a little bit, a little bit like begging to to mm. kind of you know, ask people to pay for my dream, essentially. Yeah, the, though, you know,
1: the selling aspect of it for sure.
0: Yeah, it was tough, especially when you know you, you're kind of selling the promise of a book down the line rather than an actual book itself. You know, it's, it's different now. The book is out and it's there to be purchased, but I feel much more comfortable talking about it and asking people to to take interest and check it out. But it was kind of this kind of nebulous idea that I was working and I'm still writing the book at the same time as as kind of trying to sell it, um, which was difficult to kind of to manage my um, time between how much time do I commit to actually writing the book and working on it versus you know, doing things like sending out DMs to, to my followers on Twitter, asking them to, to take a look at my pledge page and consider pledging, going on podcasts and things like that. And also um, during this process, my, my first uh, my first child came along. Uh, my son Dylan was born in um, June last year. So uh, my um, my time was just completely eaten up. Uh, the whole um, funding process stalled a bit and I, I contacted the, the publisher and, we amicably, amicably agreed to, to uh, go our separate ways. And luckily, the, the publisher who had um, contacted me with a kind of conventional author, a, a more conventional publisher, who'd offered me that deal just a few days after I'd signed with them, band, was still interested in the book, and they took it up. And that's Pitch uh, that's Publishing, who, who I'm with, who, who published the book and brought it to life. And, and I'm very grateful to, to them for doing that. And um, yeah, I guess the, the main lessons I learned with that, it can just take a while, just kind of don't, You've got, to, you've got to pitch to a lot of different places, but you've also got to be really patient to, to wait to, to hear back and not kind of fear that no news, uh, no news is bad news necessarily. To um, so just wait it out. And, uh, and yeah, I think I, I didn't really give it enough time to, to kind of generate the interest from publishers. Um, so that's definitely what I'll do next time around, what I will do um, with, the, with what I'm working on uh, going forward. So that's, that's been the big takeaway, not to kind of jump into anything that, that doesn't suit you, because um, I end up wasting a lot of time and effort, really, on that. Um, i wasted a lot of other people's time as well. I, of course, I, I should say, everyone got the money back. I who pledged pledge uh, got the money back for the book. And um, I would hope that most of them were still interested in the project and, and have checked it out since uh, the pitch. Um, so the promotion wasn't all completely a lost effort, but um, there was certainly a lot of time and effort that went into into that whole campaigning and crowdfunding uh, side of things that, that probably delayed my book um, longer than it needed to, uh, were I to signed with a more conventional publisher at that point. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I would really be be wary of doing something like that again.
1: Yeah, just for any aspiring writers that listen to this podcast, uh, if you could approximate how many no's you got before getting to yes, like are we talking yeah. 20 to 1? <laughs>
0: Yeah, probably around that, maybe maybe fifteen to twenty years. It's also quite hard to um, to actually even get to the point of submitting uh, a proposal to a publisher because a lot of the publishers these days will only accept proposals uh, via 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 literary agents. Um, and I had met with an agent, um, uh, one of the, the the more prominent agents in uh, UK sports publishing. who gave me some great advice, but I didn't sign with him. Um, uh so I was kind of on my own. Um I, I've been told that my, my proposal was good, that it was kind of structured in the right way, uh, that the idea was strong, but that um it's a difficult industry to get um it's difficult to get sports books published um unless it's kind of a former prose autobiography or something that comes with kind of a guaranteed um number of sales. Uh so I think you kind of rely on some, on somebody to to read your proposal um, from the pile that they get every week. I'm sure, and and kind of connect with it and and, and believe in your idea as much as you do. And I guess you, you can't really expect everyone to feel that, that the same way you do about your project. So, um, yeah, I'd say it's probably 15 to 20 went out there and there was the one that came back, and that's uh, that's where where I
2: went. That's one heck of a story, Ryan. Um, just the from from everything that you learned in uh, the. Uh, the process that like like you said didn't end up going your way with with the uh self funding and in the the campaigning and such like that but the connections you were able to make um and at the same time just the not giving up right on on trying to find the correct and con- and like you said the more conventional way of of getting your your uh, book idea looked at so that it could be uh worked with and published at some point um, i think is is very aspiring inspiring i'm sorry for aspiring writers because we find ourselves as as well uh maybe finding not knowing where to go and how to do this and of course it's really difficult to get rejected but um you know from your testimony just in and add add your testimony to the fifteen other testimonies in your book ryan just you 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 keep plugging away um and, and, and keep on fighting for for what you what you hope can be your book, which ended up being the next big thing. Um, I'm personally very happy that that you kept on going because it was a fantastic read.
0: Well, thank you, I appreciate that. And and yeah, I was kind of so I, I was all in um, by that point anyway. Um, so yeah, I'd already done all the interviews. Um, I'd already told plenty of people about this book and when it was coming, so there wasn't really an option to kind of give up on it. So. Um, if I didn't have that alternative offer on the table, um, I was lucky that kind of going through the whole crowdfunding process, knowing that in the background from pitch and they did say that, you know, if anything changes in the future, get back in touch with us. So I did kind of have that fallback option. So that kind of gave me that extra bit of security mm. and um, the confidence to be able to say that it's too unbounded. This isn't working. I think we should, you know, we should try something else. Right. Um, but even if we didn't, I think, yeah, I think I was too far, too far into to go back. I wouldn't want it to have given up on, And all these, these 15 players who who'd shared, you know, their, their time and their stories with me and all the people, um, who supported me in the effort of, of making the book. So yeah, it was, it was always going to be a thing. It was just, uh, the route I went wasn't necessarily set in stone.
1: Yeah. That's an interesting question. So all these interviews you had to set up just for the book, Uh, how did that compare to the sales process of getting attention for it? Like, Was that much easier? Was it about as hard?
0: It's a similar kind of thing because you kind of have to sell your idea um, to somebody. So you have to kind of make them believe in what you're doing and make them see that this is something that would interest them, um, hopefully, as well. So um, whether that be you trying to secure time with a footballer to talk about their career or you trying to secure a sale of your book for somebody who's going to commit their time to reading it and, and hopefully digesting and enjoying the stories within it. Um, so yeah, there's there are similarities between how you kind of pitch yourself uh, as a writer and uh, your idea. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the difficulties with, with trying to reach out to players, um, I think it's, it's definitely more difficult um, to, to work, uh, to get access to players who are still currently playing and under contract with clubs. It's very, very guarded um, over here in the UK uh with, with access to, to sports personalities. I know it's a little bit different in the US. Um there's more of a culture of media access and locker room access and things like that are just the norm where that's that's completely unheard of over here. Um yeah there's, there's you know there's all kinds of in house media teams and gatekeepers who who um who are there to kind of meet out who gets the, the, the meager minutes um with the star players among among the journalists, and, and it's difficult if you're not affiliated with one of the big the big players in the in the UK industry and the newspaper or publishing industry over here to get access to to to, uh, to, to the big names. But with I think I was looking at these most of the players in the book had retired and um, had interesting paths. A lot of their stories, perhaps were partially known but not fully known or fully understood. Um, So I was able to kind of present an opportunity to to put their side of their story out there, to kind of set the record straight on why things didn't quite go to plan for them in their careers. Um, And I think, well, it was certainly to the the 15 who were open to it, who were in a place where they were ready to discuss their their careers and look back um, without any kind of bitterness or regret. Um, which would be understandable if some of them did have it because of what you know, what, what they were rubbed of essentially by by circumstance. But there were also there's a list of maybe fifty or sixty names I had who were suitable candidates for this book and, they, and who I reached out to and, you know, either didn't I didn't get anywhere with, I didn't hear back from or they decided not to be a part of this. So um it's it's not in any way presented as a definitive list of these are the fifteen wonder kids quote unquote who didn't who didn't make it. Uh, for, for whatever reason, it's just a kind of sample size of a, of a greater group to give you a, an understanding of the different ways that it can happen and the different roadblocks that are in the way. Um, so yeah, these just happened to be the guys who were in a place to be ready to tell their stories and willing to do so.
1: I couldn't help, and I'm sure you had a similar issue. I couldn't help reading this as a dad with, a, you know, I've got a 10-year-old son that fancies himself a pro someday. So as I read a lot of these stories was it uh, lionel morgan that talked about uh 15 or 16 being the age where you know it, that's that's what you should target <laughs> like being good at 15 or 16 versus signing at a super early age and out competing everyone <clears throat> i'm just wondering like for as you were writing the book how much you contemplated that with the sun coming
0: yeah it definitely is it's, um Becoming a father has kind of impacted the way I view sports and the type of stories I'm interested in greatly um, in the time since. Um, I'm definitely interested in that kind of dynamic of how a sport and industry uh, like soccer takes care of its its young people um, and what responsibility we as parents have. Um, And whether or not, you know, just the simple question of would you want your son or your daughter to go through this process because the, the rewards are so rich, um, they're so high. Um, there's so much in it for those who succeed, but the the, the success rate is so low, and um, and on the way to kind of that, that route to, to not making it, there's a lot that can go wrong within a young person's life, and, and a lot a lot of damage that can be caused. I think it's there are measures in place to kind of guard against that but you can never prevent it you, you know it's never going to be the case that everybody joins an academy at nine and is told the dream of becoming a footballer will make it to the first team I, mean, I think I mentioned in the book that the, the, the figures I found on on the success rate of, of a young footballer who joins their professional academy at nine um, I think about 0.5% would ever appear for that club's first team um, so there's a lot of people that fall through the net and um, their welfare and um, a lot has been done now, more than before. Certainly, a lot, and certainly more than for the the older players that I spoke to. In my brother, a, a lot more is being done to to help such players. But there's never going to be a kind of a, um, a catch-all um, solution. Um, so there's there's it's still going to break a lot of people. Um, so I definitely, yeah, I kind of asked myself that question, and I and asked some of the the players who themselves were fathers whether they, some of them do have. I think a handful of them do have kids who are who were promising footballers themselves, and are in academies or looking to to to, uh, to get themselves into academies. And it was interesting to see how they differed in their belief of whether the football life um, is a, is a wholesome and, and a, an enriching one for a young a young boy or girl. Um, yeah, it, it it was conflicting. Some said that it instills discipline and. Improvised structure others I think, I think believe that maybe it led to it, it could perhaps breed an entitlement within the kid who you know gets intoxicated by the fact that they're wearing a premier league club's track suit at, at, at 9 10 11 years old and might want to be there yeah the, the main guy in the playground at, at, at school and things like that and want to show off and then you know five years down the line they're, they're they're released and they've got nowhere to go and how do they deal with that um so yeah, I think. Sorry, to cut a very long story short, yeah. I think the prospect because it it, for the most part of the process, it was the prospect of becoming a father rather than actually being a father. I was um, by the time my son was born, I was a long way down the line with having written most of the book. Um, I think i have maybe had two or three chapters left to do once he'd actually been born. Um, but it was sort of, it's certainly part part of my thought process um, was informed by you know how how would I feel about about my well, what what became my son. I wasn't sure whether it was a boy at the time, but what my child oh, yeah. would want for my child. You
1: kept it a surprise. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, Ryan, I know just to shift channels a little bit, you have forged an independent path for yourself as a journalist and sort of carved out a niche here with your profiling players providing full-color perspective on their development process Uh, It seems that this provides a launch pad. Like you've, to your point, done all the interviews and have built an identity for yourself with these clubs and the players. I imagine that's something of a launching point for you where there's more players to profile and it'll be easier for you going forward.
0: Yeah, the the biggest thing um, that I've come away from um, that's kind of enriched my... Um, prospects as as, as, a, as a sports writer is, is the uh, the contacts I developed through the process of, of making this book. Um, so I, I I now know a lot more people at, at clubs and know a lot more current and former players and and agents and whatnot than than I did before I started this. So it's kind of opened doors for me in terms of in terms of access. I've been very lucky with um, some of the things I've been able to do since, and it's not been a conscious effort of mine to to focus on. The youth development side of things um but uh it, it just is also the case that a lot of people I, I know within the game are uh are within that realm um so it makes sense for me to you know pursue the stories from from within that sphere um and yeah i've been really enjoying that. that's what i those are the type of stories i like writing the most i like trying to understand the person and get into the heart of, of what drives them and, and, and what challenges they face um I think there's, there's a quote from from Gary Smith, the, the famous sports illustrated writer, that's something along the lines. Of, I'm, I'm probably butchering this, but um, find uh, the the central complication of, of, of your subject's life and, and and figure out how they they go about solving that complication every day. Um, so that's kind of you know gets to the heart of of the human element of of the people I, I'm, I'm writing about at the moment. So I'm trying to think of beyond, you know, what do they do on the pitch, but, but who are they and, and what drives them? And that's that's what interests me most as a sports writer. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, of the American style of sports writing, particularly like the, the, the magazine style of long form profiles. Those uh, guys like Gary Smith, um, uh, Tom Snow, uh, right? Thomas was my my favorite writer. So these are the guys I look up to most, um, and whose whose work I I essentially want to emulate really, and do those kind of long form profiles and given the space to really explore a character or a place or a person, or a team. Um, so yeah, it just so happens at the moment. Um, youth development has played a big part in, in, in me being able to tell those kinds of stories.
1: Yeah. And to that point, can you tease out any players that you're following or clubs you're looking at going forward?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, at the moment, um, I'm, I'm working on a piece about re Brewster. Um, I've been, been working with uh, working alongside Liverpool Echo uh, lately for their, their new LSC Stories project that they're running. Um, it's a, a, a kind of series of long form pieces that they're beginning to run, all based around Liverpool. Um, I, I did a piece on Joe Gomez a few weeks ago, um, where I went and um, kind of traced his path from his beginnings at Charlton by speaking to uh, the, the Charlton Academy manager Steve Avery, also to one of his former managers at Charlton, like Chris Powell. And um, some people he worked with at Liverpool too to kind of get to the heart of how how Gomez has dealt with the injuries that he suffered in the last few years and and how, how that 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 hurt that um, that he would have felt by having to watch watch on as his uh, colleagues went on achieved so much last season essentially without I think because he missed so much of the campaign. Um, so that, that was a piece that ran a couple of weeks ago. And I'm doing a similar sort of thing on Rian Brewster now because it seems like uh, Rian is um, on the cusp of, of a breakthrough this season at Liverpool. Most um, definitely. Yeah. And he's, he's a really exciting talent. So I've, um, at the moment, in the next few days, I'm going to uh, be finishing up on that. I've spoken to some really interesting people in his life. I spent an hour and a half speaking to his dad the other week. Um, Spoke to people at Liverpool about him. I spoke to um, coaches at Chelsea. I spoke to his first ever youth coach, um, the person who scouted him for Chelsea. So I'm really just trying to get a as broad a, a broader picture of of Rian as a young young man as I can, um, and seeing where that takes me. Seeing where the story is within that. Um, and and like I said, these are the kind of stories that I most enjoy writing.
1: Yeah, the quote, quote I took from I think your latest Facebook post was: uh, "This is a hugely ambitious player." So that's. Uh... A very interesting tease, as Liverpool supporters that listen to this podcast are looking at the season coming on.
0: Yeah, the campaign. For sure. um, yeah, I've just been as, as a bit of a further tease to, to that. The discussion I had with his with his dad um, was wide, wide ranging and covered pretty much his whole life to this point. But he he was saying about how Ryan doesn't just kind of want to want to play for Liverpool. His ambition isn't just to get into the team, it's to, it's to become a Liverpool legend. That's how driven he is. That's what, even at 19, he already has his sights set on. He has really big goals and big dreams, and he has big talent too. So um, it's going to be really fun to watch and see what he can deliver on.
1: Yeah, I was in South Bend because that was my sporting world. Some big fan of Notre Dame college football, American football, and Liverpool. And Liverpool played a... Uh, a preseason match at Notre Dame Stadium, which was wonderful, I'll <laughs> just say. Uh Rian played the second half of the game versus Dortmund and raised his hand for a pen. So I think there's some ambition in the kid. <laughs>
0: yeah, and uh, what a penalty it was as well, right in the corner.
1: Yeah, right. Essentially right towards where we were sitting. You probably see us in the shot, but <sighs> leave that story for another time. Hey, Ryan, wonderful book that you've written uh it's been a long time coming we've been talking about it for a while it was thoroughly enjoyable it was i think i told you you've lofty expectations you've been overachieved on that so congratulations again
0: oh thank you very much that that means a lot um, yeah i just had an email i uh, from the publisher saying that um, they're going to need to reprint so i think it must be going quite well with it
1: so. that's awesome
0: look at me it's great
1: well a friend of the talk on podcast as you've always been you're very gracious with your time as always and uh encourage everyone once again to go out and buy not just one buy 10 copies of the book for me I mean, <laughs> give them away to your friends <laughs> yeah, do it it's wonderful yeah a great christmas gift coming out. Yeah, absolutely ryan thanks again
0: thanks so much for having me cheers guys take care